God that he did make the way, right? The incomprehensible God has revealed himself to us. He has condescended so that we could actually have life and have a relationship with him and his awesomeness. What an amazing God we serve, right? And that's why I love those songs that we sing. It brought just such, they're rich in the truth, making it very simple and yet so profound to know that we worship the only God and the overwhelming majority of the world is still in the dark, right? We are truly a privileged people. So, tonight, we are going to finish Exodus chapter 27, just verses 20 to 21. So, before I do that, I want to recap everything that we've learned up to this point concerning the Hebrew sanctuary, all right? It began back in chapter 25, And I'm not going to spend too much time, but I just want to kind of give a quick review up to the point as we go over these two verses. So the first thing we saw in chapter 25 at the beginning of the chapter was the command to gather all the materials for it, all the materials that for for the articles, for the tabernacle, everything, there was a command to go get all these materials. And believe it or not, that paragraph might, for many, might just overlook that. But as I was reading it this week, I feel like there is much for us to take in because when God wants us to do something, we can be assured that he will provide everything that we need. He is not going to tell us to do something and not give us the ability to do it. And we know for us, we have the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is our ability to do anything, Spiritual gifts, they're not something that is in us naturally. There are things that the Spirit has given us. So if God tells us to do something, God wants us to obey Him. God wants to obey His law. He wants us to love Him. He wants us to love each other. Guess what? He will give us the ability to do that. So I think there is much there when we just look at God says, go get these materials. Well, guess what? He was going to provide the materials they needed to trust and obey Philippians 4, 19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Popular verse. And though this verse, like many verses, has its own immediate context, the reality of that is true for just about anything in Scripture. God tells us to do something. We should be confident. We should obey knowing that we will have his favor. Okay? Knowing that he will provide anything that he tells us to do. So Israel was at a time in their history where God was showing them essentially their uniqueness as his people, right? They were to worship him the way that, in the way that he chooses, right? And he was going to provide everything that they needed. They just needed to get out of the way and learn how to trust him, right? And that's exactly what we need to do. So then we get to the first article, which was the Ark of the Covenant. And like everything in a sanctuary, it was a picture of God's presence. And within it was the golden jar with the manna. We'll learn about that as we progress in Exodus, which was a symbol and reminder of God's provision for his people. Also, what was in it is the Ten Commandments, God's perfect rule of life. It's called the Ark of the Testimony. It held the Ten Commandments. And, of course, it was also Aaron's rod that budded, symbolizing Christ forever chosen priesthood, okay? He is the great high priest. And then you had the second article was 
the mercy seat, which essentially was the lid or the covering of the ark. And we know that this was a picture of God's forever covering of his people's sins. Really even better, not so much right now, we're covered, but in the new heavens and new earth, in the age to come, we don't need a covering anymore. We have it in and of ourselves. That's what we look forward to. But for now, this is called, John said, the propitiatory covering. And that's what that represents. Then you had the third article was the table of showbread. And this represented, again, God's provision and also his fellowship with his people. He is among his people. And then the fourth article was the lampstand. And John reminded us that this was a picture of the church, the church who is the illumined ones because of Christ. He mentioned that without Christ, there is no church. Well, guess what? Without Christ, there's no Israel as well, right? So our whole being is because of God, okay? We are not here apart from him. We are not the church apart from Jesus Christ. Then we got to chapter 26, and all these articles were for a specific place, and that place was the tabernacle. And Pastor went through chapter 26. And this was the place where God dwelled in a very real and gracious way with his people. And within the tabernacle, we know that there were two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies or the most holy place. And the holy place is where the table of showbread was and where the lampstand was. And as we move on further in Exodus, we're not there just yet, we will see that there is another article to be made, which was the altar of incense. And all these were in the holy place. Then in the holiest place, or the holy of holies, we know that it was separated by a thick four-inch veil, right, made out of linen, okay? And the only thing that was in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. And only the priests were allowed in the holy place, but only the high priest was allowed only once a year, and we know, but not without blood, right? So this is, this is the tabernacle. So then last week, we went over the courtyard and the altar. And the courtyard was the outer perimeter of the tabernacle and it had a wall around it that was about seven and a half feet high as its border. And the courtyard had only one entrance, which was a picture again last week of the one and only way into God's presence. It was on the east side and the only way was to get to the presence of God was to go where the tabernacle was on the west side of the courtyard. So this is the one and only entrance. Jesus, we know, is the way, the truth, and the life. All points back to him. And the first thing that you saw through the gate was the brazen altar, where the priest would bring the slain animal of the sinner as a sin offering, and they would be accepted, right? So it was a constant reminder of their sin. And this is what you saw when you went there. And then there were two more verses left, which is where we're going to be today. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read Exodus chapter 27. I'm going to read verses 20 to 21. We'll finish the chapter, and then, of course, I'm going to pray. So let's give God the glory that he deserves. 
Exodus 20, 20 to 21, 27, verses 20 to 21. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. And it shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. Well, Heavenly Father, we just sang about all that only a holy God can do. And you are the holy God. And though we were not holy, yet you have made us holy because we are your people. So, Lord, your, feast, your people feast on your word. We need your word. We need your strength to understand it. So now as we, we gather tonight, Lord, this fellowship of saints coming together, worshiping our, the one true God who is our Father, we ask that you would give us strength from the Spirit. And we know that you hear our prayer because we ask all this in Jesus' name, who is our Lord and our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So, we have a charge to the sons of Israel to get another item. And if you look at this, it was something that took time and diligence. This was this oil that they had to get. This was... Uh, the highest of the three grades of olive oil, making it the most pure. And what they essentially would do in just studying this, they would take a mortar and a pestle, and they would crush and grind unripe olives, and then they would use a strainer of sorts to remove any of the sediment. What you would have is a really high-quality, clear oil, and it would not really smoke that much, right? So this is what would happen. So this process, like any process, like any kind of process, it took time, it took money, and it took work, right? And it made me think, God wants us to give him our best, who is infinitely holy and wise. He never wants us just to, to we saw this with the animal sacrifices, right? You were to get the best of the flock. It couldn't be something that was, uh, an animal that was, something was wrong with it. It had to be the best, when God gives us something, when he blesses us something financially, we are to give him what? The first fruits of our increase. God doesn't want the scraps from the table. He wants our whole heart. Amen? And we kind of see this. So, so, so they were commanded to do something. It took time. It took diligence. This is what they had to do. But so far, if we have been paying attention up to this point, these commands were given to everyone. That is, all the sons of Israel. But now we're getting to the first duty that was specific to the priests, just the priests. We know that there were many duties that the priests had, but here is the first that we actually see mentioned in Scripture. And what is implied here in this text is that they worked in shifts probably through the night so that each of the seven candles or lamps in the menorah would burn continuously through the night. Right? So it took work. In other words, there would always be light in the holy place. It would never go out. This was the task of the priests. Now, one may ask, 
what is the significance of all this? And of course, that's a good question, and that's why we're here, and that's why we dig into Scripture, and that's why we, we do what we do. And I think there could be actually many answers to this. So the first thing that came to my mind as I was studying this, it actually came from a, a popular verse in Scripture that is 1 John 1.5. And there's going to be many verses that we're going to get into. 1 John 1.5. And the Scripture says this, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, God is called many things in Scripture. We know that He is the truth. We know that God is spirit, right? If you were catechized, He's God is spirit, and He does not have a body like men. He is not like us in that sense. God is holy. God is wise. God is righteous. God is good. We can keep going and start talking about all His attributes, right? But here it says that God is light. And we see that description often in Scripture. And if you look at that word, it's a little bit more difficult to understand. It takes a little work. Well, what does that really mean, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all? There's actually multiple different things that that actually means. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 reminds us in talking about God who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has, has, has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We know, Pastor loves to quote that verse, that God told Moses that no one can see his glory and live. He is that magnificent, that holy. The brightness of his glory would just kill sinful man, Right? Listen to Matthew Poole. If you know me, you know I often will quote him. He's uh, one of the Puritans in the 1600s, and he's just a great, he's a, he's a great expositor of the Scriptures. Listen to what he says. He says, God is light. In God, all true perfections and excellencies must be understood eminently to concur. And of them, more could not have been comprehended under one word, that are here some way represented or resembled by light. He says that he is a being of most lively, penetrative vigor, absolute simplicity, immutability, knowledge, wisdom, sincerity, righteousness, serenity, benignity, joy, and felicity, and especially of most bright and glorious holiness and purity." and in whom is no darkness at all, nothing contrary or repugnant hereto. I think it's a great thing what he just said. He, he explains so much of what light is. So as Poole, uh, like many other do, he seems to use light as an expression of just about all his wonderful qualities and attributes. What we'll also see as we uh, tonight is that light is also used in connection with life. And we see this actually, especially now we're in the summer, we just got the past spring, right? Without light, plants and trees are not going to grow. We love to see grass, we love to see all that. Yet light is essential. John chapter 1, right in the beginning, says this. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. I'm sorry, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word being, we know, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, He, Christ, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It's interesting. If you look at the word light here, it's the word zoe, right? That's a a popular girl's name nowadays. And in the Greek, it's used in Scripture to refer to spiritual life in particular. John 5, 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. It's talking about the aseity of Christ. God has life in and of itself. No, there would be no life apart of the one who is ever living, who has always been living, who will never not exist because he is the Holy One, right? Going back to John 1 and verse 6, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is the nation of Israel, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, and here we are today, as his bride, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we see here that light is used in connection to life and spiritual life, namely. And not just in the physical sense, but like I said, but the spiritual sense. Remember that when God said to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. He was not just talking about a physical death that would inevitably happen, did happen, but of spiritual death. And spiritual death is separation from God and his favor. Light is also used in connection to righteousness, righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, a popular verse again. The Word of God reminds us as believers, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And then he explains himself. For what partnership, fellowship, have righteousness and lawlessness, implying that unbelievers who are slaves to their sin cannot do any good. He says, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Yet, in, in many terms, light in general with darkness, they don't come together. Light overpowers it, right? And if we use it as far as evil and holiness, they don't have any fellowship together at all, right? Righteousness has no fellowship with unrighteousness. Let's go back to our text in Exodus for a moment. The priest 
were to make sure that the lamps were lit throughout the whole night. We know that mankind sleeps at night, or at least they're supposed to, right? Oftentimes, unless you have a, a night job, and we know there's a purpose, and the scripture uses the analogy that a lot of wicked things are done at night. And you see that still exists even today. So the biblical scholar Douglas K. Stewart mentions this, and I thought, and I liked it. He says, but Yahweh did not sleep. Therefore, it would have been entirely inappropriate to allow his lamp to go out during the night hours. Remember, this was all symbolic, this whole thing. It, it pointed to something greater. Because that could be interpreted to mean symbolically that he had gone to bed. Now, we know that God doesn't need light to see, but I like the symbolic connection. Psalm 121, verse 3 and 4 says, He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. And that's a beautiful thing. He is always attentive, and he never grows weary. Never. He's able to give his undivided attention to every one of his saints at all times, as if we are the only ones that exist, as if we have all his attention, and in fact we do, yet it's undivided because he is, don't try to figure it out, we can't in our finite minds. He is the God of all creation. That is the God who we serve. So as we look at this earthly sanctuary as a picture of something greater, I want you to see, church, that the light in God's sanctuary never goes out. That is his heavenly sanctuary. His heavenly sanctuary, which will one day be an earthly sanctuary. There can't be darkness when there is the brightness of his glory. There can't be darkness as a picture of evil when there is the presence of the Holy One of Israel who is pure righteousness. There can't be darkness as a picture of death because God is life. And there can't be darkness in the sense of being without knowledge as well. You have heard the phrase, I was in the dark, meaning I did not know. So I'd like to use these four statements in our application for tonight, if we could. And at first, I was going to use them as four separate headings or points, but there's a lot of overlap, and they're very similar, so at least for two of them, I feel, are. So what I want to do is simply look at these through the lens of the Scriptures and let them bring these amazing truths out and allow the Spirit to do the work that only here He can do. So as believers, we are never in the dark, but we have been illumined forevermore, and that is such a great and amazing gift. I can't stress that. Now, because of our disobedience, maybe at times, or our laziness, if we be honest at times, some of us are less illumined than others because we neglect to give God the time and careful study to his word that we should. Now, we're illumined. We know Christ. But I'm talking about in another sense now. If I don't go and I don't go and hear from him, He's not going to talk to me audibly. He's not going to talk in some other way. He has spoken, right? And if I'm not going to go, my God, who established a relationship with me, I didn't seek him. He gave me his word. 
And he said a lot, right? He's talkative. Well, it can't be a two-way, it can't be a one-way street. It's got to go both ways. Psalm 119, 105, a famous Sunday school verse, right? When your kids, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, this is a wonderful verse, but how sad is it that many believers will amen this? Amen. Hallelujah, Mike. And yet never open his word. Or maybe they simply rely on others open it for them and they see it through their eyes or their lens. And certainly there's a place for that. God has... Someone studied, they, he showed them something through the scriptures, and they want to share. That's great. But that can't be it. That can't be it. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and my path. This was the psalmist's feet and path. And the psalmist, who was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking the word of God, was speaking the word of God for who? His people. Amen? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. He says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. That would be the whole Word of God. For they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them. Because, why? They are spiritually discerned. You cannot understand the Word of God unless you have the Spirit of God residing in you. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. And look at this. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? The answer, no one. Who can give God instructions? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. You know, in my life, there are several professed believers that I see on a daily basis. And I love them, and I pray for them. And they have opportunity upon opportunity to study, to read, and know deeply the God in whom they profess that they love, only to do literally nothing about it. Well, that's scary. That is not how we should be as his children. To say and affirm and amen truths because you know it to be true, but we don't do anything about it. We don't love him enough to actually read it. He's spoken to me. My father loves me. He loves me with all his heart and soul. He's, he loves me with all he has. He gave his son. How could I not get into his word? My heart breaks for them because they are not valuing his mercies that are new daily. They are not valuing the gift of illumination by the Spirit if, in fact, they are true believers. And every time we neglect, this is not to pick on them, it's to learn. Every time we or I neglect to seek him in his word, or maybe I'm a little bit tempted to be lazy, and I teach it, I'm doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. John 14, 16 to 17 says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, 
whom the, wor- whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And he abides with us. Scripture says in another spot, no one can call Christ Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one. In Sunday school, we're talking about repentance. We, we touch a little bit on regeneration. Well, who does that work? The Holy Spirit, right? If he doesn't do that work in us, then guess what? We are not going to come to faith and repentance. That's part of the process. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We have the life-giving spirit who gives us the ability to understand the words of the life-giver, the words of he who is a light and has life in and of himself. Jump with me real quick to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. And as you are turning your Bibles there, I want you just to keep in mind a couple of things. I want you to keep in mind what we have been learning, not just today, since we've been in this section of Scripture. I want you to keep in mind the fact that as God's people, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. I'm going to touch on that popular verse again in a little bit, that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. I want you to keep in mind that we are of a new order in a sense, maybe even a new substance, a a new race even, right? In this world, we have a man-made race. No, we are of a new race. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Keep in mind that we are a people for his own possession, Keep in mind that we are of great value to our Father and our Lord and our King. He is for us, Romans tells us, not against us. Keep in mind that we were forever present in the mind of God even before time was. We were ever present in his mind because God doesn't learn anything. I can't even wrap my mind around that. All of creation, the whole purpose behind it was redemption. And keep in mind all the promises that are ours in him. Revelation 21, verse 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal, clear jasper. Now understand, as he is talking about a city, we must understand that cities are for who? People, right? It is the people that make up a city. There's no people, there's no city. So here we see a picture of a people of shining brilliance, made for everlasting worship. Keep in mind the sanctuary we are learning about, which is essentially a temple. Move on to verse 22 in Revelation. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, 
and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. Remember, this is a picture trying to describe something. There's always day. There's never night. The gates are never closed. So the gates are never closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's books of life. And the reason they won't come into it is because they are being judged. They are in their place. But this is the special place of God's people. No more need of priests working to give light because the real light is here. The old has passed and the new has come. Well, we're not in that age just yet. That is to come. But if we are in Christ, indeed, the old has passed and the new has come. Before I even read this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, do we believe this? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Something extremely unique from all of creation, right? If, he is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you are in Christ, and I'm preaching to the choir here, you are of a different kind. We are of a different kind. You are, we are under a different head, right? No longer is Adam our head representing us, but the Lord Jesus Christ represents us. We were dead men walking, but now we are a live man waiting to live like we have never lived before. That should motivate us in this sin-cursed world. When we deal with our own disgusting, wretched sin that we still have remaining in us, be comforted by the scriptures. John 8, 12 says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And brothers and sisters, this means that we will never be in the dark anymore. But there is a concept in this verse that shouldn't be missed, I believe. And that is the concept or this, this word of following, right? He who follows me will not walk in darkness. And the goal of repenting and believing is to continue following, right? He who endures to the end will be saved. And that endurance is, first of all, let's not make it anything that has to do with works. It's simply enduring in our profession of faith. We believe it has nothing to do with my works in the person and work of Christ. But all believers are called to be disciples. And there's no disciple without someone who follows their master. So we should continue on the road that is always bright and will assure you that you are, not, that you are going the right. When we are, we are following him, right, we can be assured that we're going the right way. We can be encouraged 
by the scriptures even when times are tough. This is the road of obedience. Ephesians 5.8, the great reminder. He says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So because of this, now what? Walk as children of light. I say it all the time. Be who you are. If you're in Christ Jesus, no. What does he say to the Corinthians? And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were made clean. That's who you were. But now you're children of light, so walk that way. So he says, now you are light, meaning you are illumined. You are no longer without knowledge of your sin. You are no longer under the judgment of God. And because of it, you are to walk as children of light. And walk meaning be who you are and not your old self. Paul writes to the Thessalonians concerning their walk. And listen to what he says. He wants to... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn there. I'm going a little fast here. I'm getting a little fired up. I can't help it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn your Bibles there. And as you're turning there, Paul wants to encourage them. He wants to stimulate them to be who they are in Christ Jesus. He wants them to be motivated by what awaits them in the future, but in the same way, help them to understand that the future has already begun, right? I said eternity just means that it's never everlasting. Well, for us, it started already, right? And as I read each of these verses, I want you to say before each verse, and I might just say, you can say it with me, to the church. We are the church. This is written to the church. I was doing this when I was reading it, just to get it stuck in my thick head, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 to 24. Verse 15, to the church, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. That's what an unredeemed, an unredeemed man would do, right? But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And guess what that means? You may get nothing out of it. But we are to esteem others as more important than ourselves, right? To the church, rejoice always. Doesn't make a difference what we're going through. We can be going through, I don't even like I'm not even going to say it because I'm not even going to say it. I don't like there's a certain phrase of something on earth, and I think you understand what I'm saying. It can be the worst possible thing you can imagine. But God has commanded us to rejoice always. The only way you can do it is by thinking with the right perspective. To the church, pray without ceasing. Well, God has said a lot to us in his word. Prayer is us now speaking to him. And there's so much that comes with prayer. He says, pray without ceasing. Well, Mike, how could I have these formal prayers? I have to work and do this. That's not what it means. It means constantly be thinking of God. 
Lord, help me. I got to do this task right now. Lord, help me to do this in my head. Real quick, someone comes and talks to me. As they're talking to me, in my head, all right, Mike, Lord, give me the wisdom to answer this guy the right way. Constantly praying. To the church, verse 18, in everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. That means our circumstances, because that is God's sanctification for you and I. I need you guys to preach that to me. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. To the church, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. In other words, don't suppress him from doing his work. To the the church, verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances. Don't despise the teaching that comes from the word of God. Don't don't, Don't despise the truth of God's word. Don't despise when you may need counsel. We may need counsel. And someone lovingly says, well, thus says the Lord. Too many times Christians don't want to hear it. Oh, I want something else. I have nothing else to offer. This is what we need. To the church, but examine everything carefully. That's especially true if I'm going to be teaching the word of God. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. To the church, abstain from every form of evil. Think of the Apostle Paul talking about immorality. He said, run away from it. To the church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to the church, faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. What a wonderful God that we serve. Turn with me now back to our original text in Exodus. And I hope that what we went through will help us to see this maybe in a better light. Exodus 27, verse 20. And then I will close. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall keep it in order from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations for the sons of Israel. And all this as a picture of the heavenly sanctuary which will one day be an earthly sanctuary, which will still be a heavenly sanctuary because God is there tabernacling with his people. God is there tabernacling with his people 
forever. His people who are light themselves and are perfect throughout like their Lord, who is the brightness of this heavenly sanctuary. The very Lord who redeemed them. And they, being immaculate, may now be able to give their God the perfect, spotless, immaculate worship he deserves and he desires. That is what awaits us. But we should die trying to give him that perfect worship until he takes us home. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are good. The brightness of your glory will not consume us because you had a perfect plan for us. And yet the brightness of your glory will be in our presence forevermore one day. That is what we look forward to. Thank you, Lord, for saving us, for making us a new creation. Thank you for adopting us, Father. Oh, what a blessing it is to be able to cry out to the God of all creation and say, my Father, help me. And indeed, you help. You never sleep, you never slumber. And you are a good God. Lord, help us to be who we are. And I'll gladly be that broken record saying that all the time. And I do say all that. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank him in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close with a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Have a great week.